Hello and welcome to another episode of Downton Gabby, Life After Downton. Today we are going to be talking about a whole bunch of lady shows, shows that have lots of ladies in the cast and lots of ladies behind the scenes. I am Teresa in Brooklyn. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Shannon in Oakland. So just a quick rundown of the stuff we're going to be talking about, because we've got a full slate. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're going to start with a few shows that have recently run. Big Little Lies, which was on HBO. Girls, which just finished its entire series. And Call the Midwife, which just started season six. And then in our second part, we are going to talk about a little uh, series called The Handmaid's Tale and another series called Harlots. And they're both on Hulu. Yeah. Hulu's coming out of the woodworks with two really great shows. I was kind of surprised. It's like, okay, I already feel a little overwhelmed with networks, and now I've got to consider Hulu a good one. Yeah, and we can we can dive into this when we get to that section, but I, I ended up signing up for no ads Hulu just for The Handmaid's Tale, and I think worth it because I can't even imagine trying to watch that, and then all of a sudden it's like, the new Kia Sport, blah, blah, blah. No, the worst ad is the one for the pregnancy test. And they're like, I'm pregnant. No, like, no. It's just too much. No, they do yes, not. They do. <laughs> We're oh. a little behind the times on Big Little Lies, but I was glad we decided to um, include it in our roundup here because, fuck, that was a satisfying seven episodes, wasn't it? Yeah, I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed that series. I wasn't really, I thought it was going to be like Real Housewives of Monterey or something. People throwing wine in each other's faces. You know, it took me a while to get into because I think I'm just a little over stories about, you know, rich, white, sad women. And so that took me a while to get into, but everyone said, keep going, keep going. It's totally worth it. And I do have to say that finale was amazing it was totally worth it also i really love the scene of reese witherspoon puking at the table totally worth it and then nicole came in hitting his dick with that tennis racket totally worth it i gotta say i haven't seen a single gif of the tennis racket moment and we really need that popping up on twitter every time a guy's being an asshole so um, yeah, I think the cast was what really pulled me in. I'm, I'm a huge Reese Witherspoon fan, and then everyone else was just impeccably cast. I mean, even the kids. Who cares about kid actors most of the time, with the exception of our um, one and only Sally Draper? Obviously, it's based on a novel by a woman, but I mean, like, kudos to David E. Kelly and uh, Jean-Marc Vallée, who directed it, too, the same guy who directed Wild. Like, I feel like the pieces about it didn't emphasize enough how much Reese Witherspoon is uh, like a force to be reckoned with as a producer because she is optioning these books before anyone else knows that they exist. She's developing the whole thing. And the only reason that Valet gets to direct it is because she trusts him, you know? So I think it was a whole package of just impeccable talent coming together. Um, And really, like, the relationships between all the women were so varied. I think, like, a lot of pieces focused on, like, female friendship or they went to, like, expecting the cat fights you were describing. And I was like, there there were so many different kinds of relationships between different women in this that that made up for me for what you were saying, Shannon, about it mostly being just rich white women. Right, and I think, you know, people kept texting me, it's one of the most nuanced stories of female friendship. And then I got to the end and I was like, hmm, I 
it's really not about friendship at all. Yes, there are friendships, but it is not about friendship. I really think the show is about women's instinctual fear of men killing them. Yeah. And women coming together to protect each other. Because the final moment when Bonnie, an outsider, she is not a friend, she's an outsider, she sees what's going on and her instinct is to push him. It's That's just pure instinct of worrying that he is going to kill one of those women there or her. It has nothing to do with friendship. And that's what I think it's really about. I, I think that the friendship is the thing that keeps it moving forward. The, the relationships sort of keep it moving forward and the interrelationships. And that's how the plots sort of develop through them talking to each other about what's going on. For example, when Jane sort of unspools her story of being raped and sort of wanting to seek vengeance, um, I think that story is sort of powered by being able to share that story with these women. Um, it's really about her journey, but but there's something about the storytelling that women tell these stories to each other. They are not in silence. And one of the really disturbing things in the storyline is how Celeste can't talk about what's going on with her. And it's a real point of tension and I think tragedy that she endures all of that all by herself not just because her friends would maybe help her but also as her therapist says you need to talk about it so you can get custody of your kids yeah and I think what you're talking about makes me forgive the almost like ridiculous soap opera twist that Perry was Jane's rapist as well yeah I mean like the odds of that (laughs) are like uh, the emotional heft of the finale, it says something that people were willing to overlook that because I really didn't even see any complaints about that massive, massive coincidence because people were just so into it, <laughs> like just loved, loved it. Well, I think you got to give Reese Witherspoon credit for that because the way they shot that, that her face looking yeah. at Jane's face and she realizes it. And there's just so much unspoken between the women in that final scene that it's just, that's what makes it, it, no one has to say it. It's like you see it on Jane's face, then you see it on, you know, Madeline's face and it just ripples out. I mean, that's brilliant. That's what I think took the melodrama out of it. I don't think they ever say out loud that he's her rapist. Like nobody ever says it. You're just looking at their faces and you know. I think it was it was putting a magnifying glass on something that we as women experience every day. And it made me really wonder, like, do men know how many times a day, even if it's like a stranger who's behind you in the checkout line, you kind of like throw a raised eyebrow at her when a man is acting crazy. <laughs> it, it's so integral to a woman's experience to kind of be aware in that way and aware of the other women in a space with you like that Mm -hmm. that it's it's almost stunning that we haven't seen a moment like that before that I can remember it's just a constant thing I mean where am I walking what time of day is it how close is that guy next to me I mean it's and I think that's something that all women share is that fear and that instinctual like circling the wagons around a woman you're concerned about And I I think, to me, it was just one of the best representations of just women's fear of that violence and how they'll protect each other. And I think The Handmaid's Tale also really is a story about sisterhood and that women will come together 
under any circumstance. And both stories really speak to that. Well, you know, the quote that's attributed to Margaret Atwood, that men are afraid women will laugh at them and women are afraid men will kill them. That's actually the quote I kept using to describe Big Little Lies. That's what I feel like it's about. Well, speaking of another story of female friendship that, you know, uh, man, I can't believe we all watched till the end. There were so many times we thought we were going to quit girls, but we stuck it out to the end. And well, guys, was it worth it? So before before season six started, I was just at a party um, chatting with uh, our friends, Natalie and Matt, Shannon. And yeah. Matt is a hu- actually a huge fan of the show. And But he said when he saw the billboard for season six, he was absolutely stunned because somehow he had thought that the season five finale was the series finale. And I was like, you know what? That's what they should have done. <laughs> and this is before the season even started. So even while they had some, some really good standalone episodes here, everything just felt superfluous to me. Okay, here's what wasn't superfluous. Shoshana yelling at the other three about how horrible they all are and how she has moved on and found better friends who have jobs and purses. I wish I'd been watching that show for the last few episodes. That's what I was thinking the Shoshana show would be great. So I really appreciated that. When you live through an entire series and you think about, well, what's the last shot going to be of the whole series? Because, right, the last (laughs) shot of a series kind of sums up the theme. Sure. Your Don Draper on a hilltop was a very fitting final scene. Right, right. right. What was the last scene in Downton Abbey? The whole family together at a holiday celebration and and, uh, Violet and Isabel sitting together talking about the times changing. Mm. I mean, you know. (laughs) No, it was insulting, that last image. It really was. It's like... The whole premise of the last season is motherhood is a way to grow up and to be a perfect mother, you have to breastfeed. It's just like, I mean, I hope mothers felt insulted by this storyline. I really do. But as like, you know, an an artistic writer woman who is living in a big city trying to make it, it's insulting. That I'm just, oh, to find happiness is to move out to the suburbs and take some boring ass job and live in a house and have a baby? Fuck you. And you know who was behind most of that last episode was Judd Apatow. So he gets an extra (laughs) fuck you for me. Judd fucking Apatow. Because he wants to put us all in the home and be breeders. I swear he's like a fucking Republican in the closet or something. Because all of his stories are about women finding happiness, being married, in houses, having kids. I'm still mad at him for uh, throwing out you tweet like a 14 year old girl as an insult. When his daughter is motherfucking Maude Apatow, one of the best teenage tweeters that we have in our society. I was so offended that the last shot is her face in her sort of beatific Madonna-like haze as her baby latches on. I'm with Elijah. She'd be a terrible mother. Her mother and... Marnie are both thinking that too. And I was totally shocked when I read interviews with Lena Dunham and Jenny Conner. They said after season two, they had decided that this was going to be the storyline for Hannah, that she was going to have this kid on her own. And it was just like, do you even know what show you're trying to write? This show has been so inconsistent and it has these shiny moments that are really good. But overall, it's a mess. I'm actually being harder on it, though, because I actually did enjoy it. 
I do enjoy the random episodes, so. I think there could be so many spinoffs I would like more. Like, can we watch season seven where it's just Elijah in this musical based on White Men Don't Jump? You know, can we go back and see an alternate reality where it's just Shoshana in Japan for a season? Yeah, or Ray and, you know, A.D. Bryant and they're, like, falling in love and, like, doing their project. I mean, I I want, like, a whole rom-com with them. There's competing visions for what the show is, and it was it was definitely unfortunate that it ended in that way, and I think it, it was a weird tonally to me because it was juxtaposed against Hannah's mom, the great Becky Ann Baker, who's always been one of the best parts of the show. She's just such a stunning actress, and she's really done a lot with this character. Uh, so, you know, she's never found happiness, and then we're supposed to believe that, like, Hannah's on the path to happiness... When her own mom is downstairs, just absolutely miserable. It's weird. You know, it's funny because in this entire series, every time Hannah has some job success, I was actually happy because it's like, I want her to be good at some fucking thing, you know? But I know a lot of people who really resented that she got all this writing work. I was really mad she got a job at some prestigious women's college as a full professor. (laughs) I was furious. Yeah. How do you get that? We even have to listen to the dean or whoever is interviewing her talking about how nobody wants her there, but she kept saying, internet, internet. She's going to teach people how to write for the internet. And no, I think it's true, though. I saw I saw a lot of similar sentiments, and I felt the same, too. I was like, even you and Dowd can't convince me that this is really what would happen. A.K.A. Aunt Lydia. Yeah, she couldn't even sell it. She's such a great actress and she could not even sell it. In defense of Lena Dunham, I discovered this amazing YouTube series she did, which was back in like 2009 maybe, called Delusional Downtown Divas. So it was commissioned by this art magazine and it's it's something that she and some collaborators did and it's about these three young women in New York who want to be stars of the art world and they're just completely awful people but they're sort of openly awful like they're not trying to make you like like them or (laughs) relate to them or anything they're just delightfully awful as they try to become famous in the art world and I watched a few of these episodes they're only like four minutes long but I really like them and I was thinking if girls was like this I would like it so much more So Delusional Downtown Divas, you can find it on YouTube if you're interested. I really hope she sticks to films for a little bit because those some of those standalone episodes are just so good. And I really feel like a more contained vision she can execute so well. Well, moving on to your sob fest TV. Call the midwife. Oh, how we love thee. Like so many British shows end after just a short period. And I'm really glad this is one that's gotten to, you know, keep going on and keep reinventing itself a little bit. Because uh, I just fucking love this show. And it really is, like, such a nice way to spend an hour. You know, Call the Midwife, it's great for all parts of my cycle. I'm on my period. It's amazing. In between periods, still amazing, you know, and still crying. Cry at any time. Um, but it's, it's about sisterhood. It's about 
you know, I mean, this really relates to Harlots and Handmaid's Tale. It's about the trials that women go through with their bodies. Women are so tough. And I love that this show is about the sensitivity women show to each other, but also about the toughness. So you're saying it has a more nuanced view of motherhood than the girls finale? Yeah. <laughs> so oh. we're putting out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think, uh, I think this season has been really interesting in the way that it's... Uh, maybe more than any other season, kind of shook up the view of everyone who lives in Nanata's house about maybe, like, what their future's going to be. With the arrival of Sister Ursula, played by the great Harriet Walter, and then also with the idea that, uh, you know, more of a big city hospital kind of situation is going to come in sooner rather than later. Um, and that's been really interesting to watch, too. It's got it's got a little bit of shade of Julian, like, the change is going to come. I think a lot of the characters' lives are a little bit up in the air, right? We we lose Patsy to care for her father in Hong Kong. We lose Sister Mary Cynthia because she's having PTSD from her attack, who she sent to the mother house or, or somewhere. We don't actually know where she is. Trixie's been away. She's finally rejoined the cast. It, it is interesting how the show continues to kind of grow and evolve. I assume there's some behind-the-scenes stuff going on with the character comings and goings, because some of it seems a little abrupt. But I think that the way you framed it shows that this, this show is handling it well. It is about, like, you know, this is a home base for many of the characters, but they have other things going on. They have other capabilities, uh, other visions of how their lives might go. We've already seen Jenny and Chummy leave for different horizons. And it's a testament to the core of the show that it doesn't feel like they're just treading water. I think it's a testament to how well drawn this world is. You know, when you do this world building that you talk about with science fiction a lot, but I think that they've done this really amazing world building in Poplar and Nanata's house where you have the basics for understanding the whole world and characters can come and go and it doesn't jar or mess with the larger story. One thing I was wondering was when Trixie showed up coming back from Africa, I, I'm, I'm really waiting for her to go to medical school still. This is my own I think we all uh, want that. Wish. Mm-hmm. You weren't satisfied just by her taking back up teaching her fitness class? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's exciting, actually. Um, the sight of Barbara taking off her skirt, you know, to, <laughs> to exercise in a leotard. And speaking of Barbara, the other thing I really want to see is I, I want to see Barbara and Tom get it on. Those two really, once you're engaged, isn't it okay to do that? They're in pain, those two. They want it bad, that's for sure. It's just so boring not having Patsy around, though. We got the boring of the lesbian couple. God, she's so boring. I don't even know her name. Delia. She just stands around in her bangs, you know? She has, like, one face, and I'm like, come on, bring Patsy back. Patsy and Delia together are unbelievably sweet. They really Mm -hmm. are. I love them. I really do. But I think what I've realized is it's mostly because Patsy's really good in those scenes. Yeah, but I think Delia is also, like, she doesn't have a lot of flashy stuff to do, and she doesn't have flaming red hair and a really, like, hot body. <laughs> um, but she, <laughs> I really have a thing for Patsy. Um, but 
You know that scene where she's standing, she's making cocktails, and she's in jeans and, and a little, like, sweater thing? <laughs> she's a stunning specimen. I think we can all agree. <laughs> she, she really is. Absolutely. She really is. Um, but but I think Delia is very mm-hmm. sweet, and Delia brings the a level of sweetness and openness to that relationship that I think is harder for Patsy. Yes, and I think that was reflected in, like, the one really good scene she's had this season where um, Nurse Crane gave her the book of poetry and said in many, many words without really saying it that she knew what was going on and she was sorry. Nurse Crane has been a delight this season. She has been great, and I was really noting that they've really developed her character with, like, so much humanity and backstory and front story, and she's still essentially the same nurse who showed up at the beginning and started doing the roster and driving people crazy, but she's so much more fully um, formed now. Do you think it was those Spanish lessons that really, like... Yeah, the Spanish lessons and her relationship with Mr. Mason, I think, <laughs> no, so were, good. was so, so good. And she still has the Spanish thing. Like, they didn't just drop it when that storyline dropped, mm-hmm. you know? Like, like, it still goes on because this is now part of her character. Um, and these are the things, again, this is that world-building thing that they do so well. They're, they're really consistent. They are really consistent. And this is something I haven't really thought about before, those details. And it, it's for the whole setting, the whole place, because, like, where they are in time after the war continues to matter. And now they're bringing in another nurse who used to be a war nurse and... We should say that we're after, I think, episode five of the new season in the U.S. But now they're about to add another new character, and it's they're still adding someone who's already going to add to the ongoing narrative of sort of rebuilding society and changing times after this massive event. It's very thoughtful. I am frustrated that they bring in new characters um, into Nanata's house all the time, and they're they're all still just, you know, white British women. Right. And I don't see why they can't expand on that in some way. You know, and, and of course, the diversity always comes in the, you know, baby delivery of the week story. Which are often great. I mean, the recent one about the Chinese grandmother and the daughter she had lost. I mean, I was sobbing. <laughs> it was very well yeah, done. That one was good. I think it was last season that they had, on a few episodes, they had the Jamaican character. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, there's so much potential. We've, we've definitely talked about this before. I'm hopeful that the um, African nurse who works with Delia at the um, specialty home might be at least a recurring character. Yeah, that would be nice. We'll see. All right, you guys, let's get to the main event. Let's talk about the nightmare we're all experiencing together, which is The Handmaid's Tale. So we have seen up to um, episode three at this point. It's the three episodes that Hulu released all at once that I think we quickly realized should not be binge watched. No, 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 no. (laughs) I didn't, I did not make it through. I mean, I watched the premiere. I thought it was brilliant. And then I had to stop. Like there was no way I was watching two more right after that. No way in hell. In the middle of the third episode, I had to take a break. And I couldn't actually finish it and had to go back to it. And there's been a lot of conversation. I know on my Facebook feed, there's been a lot of conversation about people who are like, no, I just can't watch it. I can't watch it. Um, Which I guess that surprised me a little bit. But there's a lot of 
lot of trauma around this. So I first read this book um, freshman year of high school. And I know it's a lot younger than most people found it in like college or adulthood. And so I've read it about four times in my life and I started to reread it. And on Sunday night, I fell asleep and I woke up and I was having nightmares as Offred. And I was like, where's Moira? Where is my daughter? And I was like, I woke up like sweating, like so upset. And I've never had that before. And it was like, this is a whole new level of real. And I think what's really terrifying that Margaret Atwood puts in the story is there were warnings. There yep. were warnings. And they're doing, first off, Margaret Atwood is my favorite author. This has been one of my favorite books of my entire life. This adaptation, I couldn't ask for a better adaptation. It is so well done. It is so well cast. And I am picky as hell. And I'm super happy with ad this adaptation. But it is, it's hard. It's hard because we're living in such uncertain times and there are warnings and we just don't know what the end result's going to look like. The reason I had to stop watching episode three was exactly because of that, because, you know, there, there are updates to this. This book was written, came out in 85, and so they've updated some things to make it seem very contemporary, um, and and that, that and that's in the trailer, so I'm not giving anything away, but like we were, I, we were asleep. I wasn't awake, you know. And, and you see all these things happening and the protests and I wasn't awake and then they did this and I still wasn't awake, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that, that in the, in comes up in, in episode three and it was just like, oh no, this is, this is really way too much. I can't right now. And that's, that's why I had to set it aside for a little while. But I mean, also really brilliantly done, really, really well done. Um, even the, even those parts um, of the slow descent into the madness of Gilead was where things I knew were going to happen, but like seeing them play out in present day like that. Yeah. When she, you know, I knew it was coming, you know, how the, how women lose all their rights, but it's like when she goes to get the coffee, you know, when she goes to work and you know, you all have to go home. I'm sorry. It's not my choice. And it was like, you know, it is so different reading it and seeing it, but it was just so powerful and logical. Yeah, those flat those scenes that are flashback scenes for the characters are all are I think emotionally harder for me to watch than even the the present day scenes. And the scene where Samira Wiley's character Moira gets mad at um at June's husband because he's like joking like, Well, I'll take care of you, it'll be fine. Like I was her, like, I was so angry at him for not being angry, and <laughs> I hear that every fucking day from Bernie bros who don't understand why it's bad that, like, Bernie would say, uh, be campaigning for a, a anti-choice candidate, you know? Like, I hear that kind of rhetoric every day from dudes who are supposed to be on our side. And I hear women laughing it off the way she does in that scene because she hasn't gotten there mentally yet. How do you not compare? Like, every scene like that was just like, when she talks about them being under martial law, it's like, you think that can't happen in an American city here today? Of course it can happen. Look at the fucking Patriot Act that we passed after 9-11 that still hasn't been, you know, still leading to more and more of a horror show. And so much of it is still happening outside of our borders that people are not awake to it. 
that's really the best way to put it. And I think this is written so much with the with the sort of way that we're talking about these issues today. One of the things that you can get a little distance from in reading the book is that it was written in the 80s and she's talking about the porn riots and the mm-hmm. abortion riot because it was written based on the feminist backlash politics of the 80s. So hearing it in, in terms of right now is it's really rough. We're going to lose Roe versus Wade. It's it, it is a thing that will probably happen in the next few years now with the makeup of the Supreme Court. I mean, it's we have a vice president who believes in conversion therapy, which is like, I can't even like say the words. I can't even believe we even use that euphemism in discourse without critiquing it, you know? And, and the, how can you not think about the way that people talked about AIDS as being a scourge from God to kill gay men? You know, people still talk about that today as if that's a normal viewpoint to have, as if, of course, that's why AIDS existed, was because gay men were sinners. So do I think that people who are, quote unquote, normal Americans walking around, people who are elected Americans could think the same thing that a, that a, if a new disease came along that made women barren, that it's because we're all sluts? We've already seen it happen within our lifetimes. We've already seen that exact same rhetoric. Well, I think that's why this is good that this is coming out now, because when I read this when I was a freshman in high school, I already grew up really feminist. But when I read this book, I literally was like, I will fight forever for abortion because you take an inch, you know, you take an inch, you take a mile, you know, because control over our bodies is the cornerstone of our rights. And that's what this story really shows. Um, and then I do want to talk about that. I think it really is about sisterhood and really kind of what it means to be a woman in a way that I don't think other stories do, but at its very basis is, is you do not control your body. You do not control anything. Yeah. And so I think it's good. It's coming out now because I think women should be horrified and I hope this wins a lot of awards because it will make more people watch it. I just picture Pence and Ryan watching this at home with a heart on. Right. Honestly. Like this is this is their greatest fantasy is is this world. And I also want to say, like from a historical standpoint, I've read some things that that were saying that when this book was published, you know, it was just sort of speculative fiction, but people didn't really take it as seriously and I I want to rebut that because I read it in 85 when it when it came out I was living in Toronto same place Margaret Atwood lives national treasure <laughs> and I read this book in 85 and are, are you kidding we were <laughs> like everyone was horrified it was horrifying I don't think anyone thought that this wasn't a comment on what was potentially happening at that moment I mean, again, this is the 80s. This is AIDS. This is the backlash to the feminist gains of the 70s. I mean, that was the world, totally. There's a great interview with Margaret Atwood in The New Yorker. Yes, I subscribe to The New Yorker, and they just pile up and haunt me. But I did read this amazing interview with her, and there's this great story of her agent. was really sick at the time, and she saw Margaret Atwood when she was writing this, and she was like, oh, my God, I'm sick, but you look like shit. Like, what's going on? And she goes, it's my new novel. It's terrifying me, but I have to write it. And thank God she did. And, you know, Margaret Atwood does so much research for all of her novels. She didn't put anything in there that hasn't happened already. 
And that's with all of her science fiction. It's happened in a time and a place to women. And that means at one time that was thought of as okay. Yeah, it's really intense watching the women hit each other. I really kind of forgot the violence of it. But when Aunt Lydia, you know, uses that cattle prod and hits, you know, the other women, it's like so intense. I mean, I think so much of the story is about how women come together, but also how women will just pit themselves against each other just to get a tiny bit more power. Those, yes, and those scenes, like, again, like, it's so easy to relate to anything going on. Like, when I see scenes like that, I think of it, you know, an argument I remember so vividly having over brunch with a male friend who's very liberal during the primaries, and him accusing me of, of like, only liking Hillary because she was a woman, and why don't I just vote for Carly Fiorina? And, it, and, like, it goes, and, like, then I hear this, feel this, like, rage that, at him, but also that Carly Fiorina even fucking exists, that there are women out there who are undermining us like that, just so that they can be uh, experiencing the benefits of the patriarchy themselves, as if they're not going to get shit on when it comes down to it, if anyone has to choose between them and a man, like, they are somehow immune to sexism, like... It, it just, every little scene relates to so many things in our actual landscape of life. Well, I think Serena Joy is a perfect example of that. And I know, Therese, you quoted that one of the best lines from the book in a Facebook post, and I keep waiting for them to talk about it, about her backstory of being this, you know, evangelical speaker about, you know, women should find joy in being in the home and that, like, you know, she really got to benefit from feminism that she got to go around and talk about it. And the line is like, she must be so upset to be taken at her word. It's really startling to me that they cast someone so young and beautiful in that role because, like, I always picture 1960s Phyllis Schlafly <laughs> as Serena Joy. Like, that's who it's based on. It's gotta be, right? Right. It's part part Phyllis Schlafly, part Tammy Faye Baker, I think was the inspiration for that. You know, again, this is this is the thing that, you know, I read this book when it came out. I've read it so many times since then. The the book to me is is the story. So every time I see something in this show, which I think is beautifully executed, I'm always comparing it. And And when I saw her and she was so young, I just thought, no, she she's not that she's not that young. She she had to have thought she spent a life working on something and then got screwed by it basically. Mm-hmm. I like her being young because I think it really shows the issue of the barren women and the jealousy that they feel towards the handmaidens. I mean, the fact that she's not much older or like the same age as Elizabeth Moss is like I think it brings the issue to a whole new head. Yeah, so in real life, Yvonne Stravosky is six days younger than Elizabeth Moss. That's striking to me that they're almost exactly the same age. Right, and that's all deliberate. And I can only see Robert Duvall as the commander because of that terrible movie adaptation they made. Um, but I also have a tr- I have problems with, with uh, the commander and his wife being so young. But I understand why they did it. I get it. I really get it. But she only, she refers to Serena Joy sort of randomly in episode three. But we still don't know why that's her name and who she is. And I'm still waiting to, to see if they're going to actually talk about that, if that's going to be part of it. Because I think the idea of conservative women being screwed by their own rhetoric 
is one of the very brilliant things in the book. And I would hate to lose and that. so important right now. Yes. I, I would be, I would be shocked if they don't dive into that. And I think, uh, you, uh, I don't know the way they were setting her up, um, in the scenes around her friend giving birth. I feel like it would be weird if we didn't get more into Serena Joy later. I can't even believe how well these weird ass scenes work. <laughs> I mean, the directing is incredible. The scenes of their weird fucking with, you know, holding hands. And then the birthing scene was amazing. And it's like the directing. I can't believe this is on Hulu. It feels like a really good HBO show. And the directing is phenomenal. It's so weird, these scenes. But they feel accessible. Getting Reed Murano to do this um, was a stroke of genius. Because she, she hasn't been a director for very long. But she's... An amazing cinematographer and obviously you can see that and um, I wish that she had directed the whole thing she only did these first three and I'm, I'm sure the rest of it will be you know more than competent but that is a high bar to jump over <laughs> I mean just incredible and for folks who don't know I think she got really famous when she did Lemonade for Beyonce um, but Reed Morano is is so talented, and and the 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 fact that she was able to set the tone for the whole series, um, saying this is the tone, this is what it's going to look like, this is what it's going to sound like, um, is is great, and it's perfect. It's it's so perfectly executed, and you know how many ways this could go wrong, right? Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Into camp, into weird horror, kitsch, whatever. I, into like heavy moralizing, heavy handed mm -hmm. everything. And it's just, it's so, so well done. And I want to talk about a particular scene, which I know we want to talk about of Glenn played by oh. um, Alexis. Alexis Bledel, who's brilliant. Who's just wonderful. I didn't even know she could be this brilliant. I know. I know. And yet, you know, and the... I've watched hundreds of hours of Alexis Bledel because I've seen all of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> right. And you know, she and Elizabeth Moss know each other from Mad Men. So not only right. did she star in it, but she she married Vincent Carthizer. So she she plays of Glenn, a fellow handmaid who you find out is part of a resistance movement. She's found out not because she's in the resistance, but because she's a lesbian and she's having some kind of relationship with a Martha, one of the housekeepers. They're both brought to court. Their trial, their entire trial consists of the judge reciting scripture and then pronouncing them guilty, which is so deeply chilling. And then they're taken yes. in this van and the whole thing coming out of the court is her sitting in a van with her, um, with her lover. And it's all from the point of view of the van in the van and looking out, you see her lover being taken out of the van, taken into the distance, uh, and hung. I can't even describe how incredible it the is scene is. So horrific. It's like Michael Haneke level horrific, that scene. Like, Ooh, it, it's a, it's all really hard. I had to close my eyes. Really hard. And again, the acting. I mean, just with, because she's got a mask on her face. She can't make sounds. It's just her eyes, her body language, and the, like, wail that she can make through this mask. Unbelievable. I mean, we're going to have to make, we're going to have to split some Emmys right now. <laughs> oh, my God. This, I mean, this has to win all the other but Emmys. I can't. I might, like, like this on. is going to come down to it. And at the Emmys, I'm going to be like, I don't know whether, because I, up until this premiered, I was so sure that we needed to hand an Emmy to Nicole Kidman. And they're going to be in the same category. It's just not fair. 
Well, Elizabeth Moss is absolute perfect casting. I mean, and really good casting as Samira, as Moira, because their chemistry in the past scenes, it's like they're so effortlessly best friends that, you know, because their storyline is one of the most important of the entire story and her searching for her almost as much as she's searching for her daughter. And, um... I actually really liked that the last episode, we never even saw her daughter because I was a little, like, it was a lot on the mom stuff in the beginning. But in the book, you really get it's her whole life that she lost. And I, I, I think they've done a good balance of that. It's everything she lost as a woman, not just her child. Samira Wiley is great. I think, like, the only sort of critical piece I've read about the show that I really... Um, that I, I think, Shannon, you sent us the link on email to um, Soraya Nadia McDonald's article about how, so far, the show seems to be kind of ignoring the racial aspects, um, which, in the book, like, don't really come into play in the scenes that we see because everyone's, like, white Protestant descendants. Um, so they're trying to kind of update it, and, of course, they need to because how annoying would it be if, you had no actresses of color in this. It would be ridiculous if you're really updating it for today. And yet, so far, they're not really dealing with that. Like, the currency of white babies exists today. And just because people started being more infertile, like, what that would really do is it would just make white babies more expensive. It wouldn't make people want any baby, right? People are too racist for that. It's an amazing piece. We should definitely... We'll post it on our social media because... Really, to read her discussion of it is, it's it's too hard to paraphrase because she does such a great job. So, uh, I'm I'm looking forward, if I can use those real words, to, to the rest of the series. It's incredible. But I, like I said, I couldn't watch more than one episode at a time, and because I was already watching Hulu, I spent the time in between catching up on Harlots. Um, which was actually a great companion piece, like slightly lighter, a lot lighter, but still diving into some like really interesting themes about women, about power over their bodies and their agency, their relationships with each other, their competition with each other, um, and, and telling a different kind of tale about a, something that we've seen a lot of times before. And the costumes. Oh my god, yes. these costumes are amazing. <laughs> Lady Sybil, can we, excellent casting. Can we bring back heart-shaped beauty marks like she wears? I love it. So of the time. And so I love, I love her, Jessica Finley-Brown, even more in this role than I did as her as Lady Sybil. She's so great in this role. And I love her costumes. I love what a flirt she is. I love the way she treats her stupid man, her keeper. She's doing a really good job because actually I don't feel like the character is that well fleshed out. And I have to say, her name is Jessica Brown Finley. But I always do the same thing and say Jessica Finley Brown because it just sounds better. Like, her, her parents should have flipped it. Like, it just sounds better. <laughs> but... No, but she is stunning, <laughs> and you can believe that the men are obsessed with her, but it's not just that. Like, she, she's really doing a wonderful job 
and I think the whole cast is pretty strong. I, I do feel like the characters need more depth so far. I've watched four episodes. I think this. I think we have five that have come out so far. I've I've seen all five. They're a delight. You know, I think it's a great mix. You know, I don't like a lot of melodrama. But for me, this is just the right mix of it's campy, it's a little ridiculous, and it's fun. But it's also, there's a thread of reality underneath it. You know, there is abuse. There is women being stuck in the situation and not having agency, but then finding agency. And, you know, even though they're kind of trapped in the situation. And, like, I think it's that thread of realness that makes it not feel too much for me. So Harlots is a new series also on Hulu um, and it is a, it takes place in sometime in the 1700s I believe um, sort of Georgian England and it is about women in London who work as prostitutes and it's basically about two competing houses um, and uh, they're very sort of different the women in the houses are different and the two madams are at war with each other. And it's actually been described as kind of a mob drama, which I think is a, a really, really apt description. Like it's it's about these two families mm -hmm. that yeah. are uh, at each other's throat and really vicious and really uh, stopping at nothing. Actually, there's like this, there's these, this blood feud yeah. thing. I had thought about it to compare to a mob thing which surprises me because once you said that I was like oh yes of course because it really is about like like the the thing that's so um magnetic about mob stories is always that combination of the sort of found family with real family and the loyalty and like how far will you go for loyalty and you have all of those elements here and then adding in the idea that they really don't have anyone else to fend for them, which is something you don't get in mob stories because they're about white men. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that is fascinating to me to look at it through that lens. Yeah, I thought it was a really apt description. And so it, it, it has made a nice break from Handmaid's Tale in the sense because it is a bit more fun. But I use the word fun very carefully because it is about the lives of uh, female prostitutes mm -hmm. and, and one, one man, actually, um, at this time. And anyone living at this time, if you weren't super wealthy, your life was going to be difficult. So add to that that you are basically doing sex work for a living um, and nobody bathes and uh, <laughs> disease must be rampant and you know just all of these things so so there's definitely an edge to this all the time I wish uh, I wish there had been a little bit more so far of our favorite topic which is is of course um, historical birth control there, there is a shot of a of an ancient condom that Quigley's son pulls out yeah I think I, I, I just want more I feel like they would be talking about it every day and we don't like shop talk that. i'd like more yeah. shop talk yeah more shop actually. talk yeah more i feel like th that there would be more of that and they talk a lot about like competition with the other house but i feel like if this is your life if this is your like more than your nine to five i don't know what the fuck else they ever do besides wait around for their next customer. i do think it's funny how they show that they get bored sometimes like some guy will yeah. be going down on her and she's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> it's really funny sometimes. I know. The one girl who's like, really? You want to do it in the alley again? Yeah. yeah. 
like the mundaneness of it. I mean, I, that's so brilliant to show that, you know, that instead of like, oh, it's so sexy all the time. Um, one of the reasons I started watching this show is because I read this article about how mistresses at that time actually had um, a lot more freedom. Like, you know how she's always in that kind of men's club with the men? That wives weren't allowed in a lot of spaces, but mistresses could kind of go into these male spaces that wives weren't allowed in, which I thought was very interesting. I was like, oh, that'll be cool to see how they do that. There's a lot of interesting things going on. I do feel like with the exception of episode four, which is it's just awesome, like all night orgy mm -hmm. yeah. party, <laughs> sort of. Um, I feel like the plot has sort of been churning around the same stuff. Like, I don't I don't know that it's really advanced that much. Like, I agree. you know, someone's fighting with their keeper. Some, you know, there's her daughter who is learning how to be a good prostitute and looking for a keeper. There's the other one who's really angry and sassy all the time. There's the constant feuding between the madams, but it does it again, it isn't really going anywhere. So I'm kind of anxious for the plot to move forward more. The most interesting thing that's happened so far, I think is, is Harriet, who is the uh, black woman who is American and has come over um, as the quote unquote wife of uh, this British guy and who joins uh, one of the houses. Um, and she's been really interesting. That's been a nice development. She has the best line of the entire show of the first night she sells herself to a man and she goes, this is the first time I've ever been paid for my work. Because she was a slave. And I have to say, I really commend them for the diversity because most people would just make this show white because, you know, black people didn't exist until the 70s, you know, in most shows. And they have several black characters, important characters, who have more than one line. They have whole storylines. And, I mean, that's really to be commended. Yeah, I, I was thinking about how when the movie Belle came out a few years ago, everyone was like, oh, how amazing that you, like, dug up this wonderful story about this person of color living and, like, Everyone was like, you know that these stor like these stories exist around like every corner if you bother to look for them. Like like what like literally what you said, like they didn't just like invent people of color after the Civil War. <laughs> like that's not how life works. But most people making the show would have just made everyone white. Oh, completely. And uh and to create, you know, characters that are you know, and not just a background character. They have their own storylines. They, you know, they they have agency. I think it's just so wonderful. And a diversity of ages. Yeah, seems like we're, we might get some type of lesbian romance. Like, I, I feel like all the possibilities are open, which is a great way to feel about a period show. Like, you never feel that way about a period show. And, and you know, there is a, a male prostitute and the wife of a nobleman who uh, has a fabulous time with, it seems like, both male and female prostitutes with her husband, which is yet another little twist that I think is really interesting. On top of the great costumes and weird wigs on men. Very weird wigs. Like, are we in a weird fashion transition moment? Because some people wear wigs and some don't, and it really freaks me out. <laughs> I think it's a class thing. <laughs> I I'm sure it is, but it still is really jarring <laughs> to cut from a scene of people wearing wigs to one of people not. 
I learned from reading the Outlander books that some people wore wigs and some didn't. And a lot of people wore wigs because they, uh, you know, had lice or had lost their hair from various diseases or, you know, things like that. And the young strapping gentlemen, you know, didn't didn't wear wigs if they didn't have to. But a lot of those rich guys are kind of fops. They're wearing these big, crazy wigs and makeup and, you know, in the style of the time. Yep, I just read a book about Louis XV and his mistresses. There's a lot of wigs. It's wonderful that we're watching so many shows that have mostly female core casts. Um, and I, I just want to name check Moira Buffini and Allison Newman, the creators of Harlots. Thank you, because I think it's, it's very interesting. And it's airing on, on basic TV in the UK. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether it's going to get a season two. I haven't heard anything about how well it's doing, but I, I think it's, it's really great. I, I, if any Hulu executives are listening to this, like, thank you for putting out two really interesting female driven shows within a few weeks of each other, because I don't, I feel like a lot of networks aren't doing that, you know, even HBO, um, this is a new thing for them. And I, I hope that it's a continued thing. And you can get Hulu free for a month. Just sign up with an email you <laughs> haven't used before. And you can get a free month of Hulu. I highly recommend right? it. Right? And then you can watch Nashville. You can also. watch Nashville. Let's not even talk about what's going down on Nashville since it moved to CMT. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. And, you know, if you're going to go that route on the free Hulu and you're going to make, you know, I want to watch harlots at gmail.com. <laughs> just wait a couple more weeks until your everything's released into that month-long window. Right. They're both being aired on Wednesdays. So, you know, I think just wait it out and binge it. Isn't but... that interesting? I feel like that's so interesting that who's trying to make Wednesdays their night the way that HBO made Sundays their night. But I don't know that anyone is is watching it in that way well i really like both the shows so i've been like oh my god i can't wait for wednesdays because i can't wait i mean i really have been enjoying harlots more than like it's kind of filled a downton abbey hole for me of it's really fun and campy great costumes and it's really feminist and i haven't really had a show like that that really ticks those boxes so it's you know gotta escape this horrible news somehow so and I don't, I don't know if we actually name-checked Samantha Morton, but uh, she has been an underrated actress for most of her career. I mean, she's just so good. Well, and now, so. you know, her tits in this in Harlots can have their own line. I mean, it's... They're just, Holy they're, shit! They're just everywhere. They have their own IMDb listing. I'm, like, fascinated yeah. by them. Like, I can't... And and the right one is always like a little bit pushed up more. Oh my god! Like, I can't believe all the scenes. I'm like that. that right nipple is gonna break oh my free. Oh god! It wants to break free second. so much. I know. I'm just really concerned about that nipple. <laughs> Makes me nervous. Well, on that note. All right. So on that note, I want to thank you all for listening to the very end of this uh, lady show filled podcast. Um, we, next month, we are going to be talking about the new film, Wonder Woman, and we cannot wait. So in the meantime, we would love to know if you've been watching any of the shows we've talked about, what you think of them. Uh, you can find us on Facebook 
at Downton Gabby. You can find us on Tumblr at DowntonGabby.tumblr.com and you can find us on Twitter at Downton Gabby. There is a pattern here. We would love to hear from you. What are you watching? What do you like? And until next month, thanks for listening. When I have a brand new hairdo with my eyelashes all in curl, I float as the clouds on air do. I enjoy being a girl. When someone with eyes that smolder says he loves every silken curl. That falls on my ivory shoulder I enjoy being a girl When I hear the complimentary whistle That greets my bikini by the sea I turn and I glower and I bristle But I'm happy to know that whistle's meant for me